Good morning again, and, uh, and a wonderful blessing to be able to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Um, and it's been a real joy going through this portion of the book of Romans. It, it seems that in, in very many ways, going through the doctrines that we found so earlier in the book um, might have seemed to some of you quite tedious. Yet they lay a, an incredible foundation. They lay a foundation that we need to give consideration with regards to how that foundation applies within our own lives. And we see that represented in the book of Romans. We conclude all the doctrines by chapter 11. Now from chapters 12 through to 15, we have how they apply within our lives. How we then live now. How shall we now live? Uh, interesting question proposed by, uh, by Francis Schaeffer many years ago. And this is represented here in these wonderful three chapters. Every verse seems in every way to be a point of reference or a manner of life and how we should live. And, and it's very difficult for me to be able to plonk those verses into just one big lot and give you a, a message in bulk because every single aspect of it is vitally important. We, we know that this portion that we're doing within our reading begins sort of at verse 9. It's about love without dissimulation. In other words, love without hypocrisy. And everything that comes after that is what should naturally follow a, a, a love that is without hypocrisy, a, one that is consistent with the entire concept of love. And we know it has to be consistent with the nature of God because God is love. So that's what we're recognising here. So when we speak about the, 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 the exhortations that we've got in the text to distribute to the necessity of saints, as we did a few weeks ago, or when we look at to, to be able to bless those who persecute you, as we did last week, there's no question that there is a consistency that we find in an empathy of love, which we find in this week's message, and that is to rejoice with them that do rejoice and to weep with them that weep. One part of it is easy to do, the other is a difficult one to do. Not, not difficult to do necessarily, but just difficult to bear. And yet we're going to be finding through this message this morning that sometimes even rejoicing with those that rejoice is not necessarily a walk in the park either, depending on what we're also going through. You sort of wonder when you're looking at Romans and especially in Romans chapter 12 what it would be like if this world would simply accept these commands as absolute. If the world would, would embrace the word of God and embrace even just these portions of Romans chapter 12, if they held on to this as absolutely true, such a small element of the entire Bible, how different the world would look like today. We're living in a time when giant media goliaths are ruling our lives and we are permitting that to occur. What we don't seem to recognise is that these same giant media goliaths are also conforming us to the image of the world rather than to the image of Christ. So it's something that we need to be considering as we, we study this. I mean, it's an incredible thing to consider as well because, you know, 
when the establishment of the public school system was set up many, many years ago, there was an interesting phrase that was put together by a secular humanist who spoke about the secular system of schooling. And he said, what can the theistic Sunday schools do to compete with a five-day program of secular humanism being taught in the schools? Well, this is exactly the same that I'm putting to you this morning with regards to, well, how is the, our what the Bible is being taught on a Sunday morning going to benefit you if you're completely absorbed in the secular humanist things that are going on in the world today. If, if all you're doing is getting your food of a Sunday morning, you are malnourished. You are malnourished. You are not being fed. Nowhere near it. You need to be adding to this in your own time. You have a responsibility to your own lives and to live according to what the scriptures teach. So, beautiful passage. We'll just take it again from verse 9. It simply says, Let love be without dissimulation. Abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. Be kindly affectioned one to another with brotherly love, in honour, preferring one another. Not slothful in business, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoicing in hope patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer, distributing to the necessity of saints given to hospitality. Bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is a wonderful, wonderful book. There are so many things found within its pages that if we would believe them as true, and we would apply them to our lives, what a blessed life we would indeed have. Challenges, dear Lord, are found within this text, yet nevertheless we know that they are true. They are commands given by you, and we know, dear Father, that if we rejoice in them, Father, we might be blessed indeed. I pray, dear Father, be with me this morning as I preach the word of God. Be with those who would hear. Let those things, dear Father, that I preach be of you, Father. And also, whatever it is of you, let them sink down into the hearts of those who hear. I give you thanks for this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Love without dissimulation. It's the very witness of God to the people in the world. And that's exactly what it is. It's the witness of God to the people that are in the world. And that's what we're doing. It is God's love that is witnessed through those who have known the love of God. So that's, that's you and I. If you've experienced the love of God, if you are born again this day, if you are saved, if you're saved from your own sin, that you have sinned against your own soul, if you're saved from that, you, you know the love of God. You know the love of God. And it's a wonderful joy. It's one of the things that we see emanating within our lives is God, God's love to us that we might be able to give to others. We return our love to God because, well, the scripture says we love him because he first loved us. You know, We love him because he first loved us. Interesting consideration. Should we not do the same with others? Should we not love them even before they love us? Remember, love isn't meant to be um, something that's on a rebound. Love is given first, well before it is ever received. It's one of those things that we see even rela with relationships between husbands and wives or between any relationship. We give of ourselves completely to that other individual regardless of experiencing any, experiencing any pain 
as a response. Because, beloved, in all honesty, unless you're willing to open your heart up completely with full risk of being hurt, you can't have true love towards an individual. And Jesus Christ is our example. And the cross is our example. Perfect example of what love actually does look like. You're going to risk getting hurt with regards to love. When we're talking about that, we're talking about empathy here. The text tells us that we're looking for is that rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. And the first point is that divine empathy rejoices. It's the picture of God first. God loved first. God also empathizes first. He is the one that is the first to have compassion. He is the one who is the first to sympathize. All that is commanded to us to do was first demonstrated by God. And in him is the full gamut of emotion that's rightly emphasized. Speaking to Israel, God said, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked would turn from, turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn from your evil ways. Why will ye die? He says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. God made clear that his desire for Israel many chapters earlier. He said in Ezekiel 18, Have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? God desires life. He desires to bless. And as a consequence, he desires to rejoice in that blessing. His first focus is joy towards you, that he might also rejoice. It's his way of rejoicing with those that do rejoice. All of God's people desire to rejoice over the sheep of his pasture, and he rejoices over his children, and his children, especially those that please him. It's one of those things that we find with the, with the word of God that God desires to rejoice over us first and in doing so he gives us how we should live, the commands. And that actually happens right at the beginning of the scriptures. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28 and listen to Moses as he speaks about the blessings that would come to Israel if they would indeed listen to the voice of the Lord. Deuteronomy chapter 28, fifth book of your Bibles. The book of Moses, those first five books are the books of Moses. They are known as the Pentateuch in Greek. As my brother Cody reminded me, they are the Torah. They are the Torah indeed. So thanks for that. I double checked. It's not the entire Old Testament. It is those first five. So the Torah in Hebrew, the Pentateuch in Greek. Deuteronomy chapter 28, just verses 2 to 9 we'll read and listen to how Moses speaks of this. He says from verse 2, And all these blessings shall come on thee and overtake thee, if thou shalt hearken unto the voice of the Lord thy God. Blessed shalt thou be in the city, and blessed shalt thou be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of thy body, and the fruit of thy ground, and the fruit of thy cattle, the increase of thy kine, and the flocks of thy sheep. Blessed shall be the, thy basket and thy store. <coughs> Blessed shalt thou be when thou comest in, and blessed shalt thou be when thou goest out. The Lord shall cause thine enemies that rise up against thee to be smitten before thy face. They shall come out against thee one way and flee before thee seven ways. 
The Lord shall command the blessing upon thee in thy storehouses and in all that thou settest thine hand to, unto. And he shall bless thee in the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. It is your God that has joy in your blessing. God himself rejoices over you to bless you and he shares in your happiness. It's that empathy that comes first from God. But he comes from God when we do his will. When he has pleasure in the work of his own children. And we're no different. As, as parents, you know what it's like. You rejoice with your children when they rejoice. And you long to see them live fruitful, blessed lives. And when they stray from your own commands, when they stray from the way that is good, you already can see the outcome of their lives. You mourn, you grieve. And it troubles us. Oh, we long to bless them. You know, and we long that they would be blessed. The greatest example of God's joy is told to us by the Lord Jesus in a parable. It's a parable found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15. Yes, you can turn there. It's a parable of the joy of the salvation of a single sinner. Luke 15 tells about the joy that is beyond even the joy of the sinner that he might even experience. It's a joy that is not lost either on the Lord nor the angels that surround his throne in heaven. Luke, the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 15, we'll take it from, well, let's take it from verse 1. Take it from verse 1. It gives us the context. Luke 15, verse 1. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners, for to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he lose one of them, doth not leave the ninety and nine in the wilderness, and go after that which is lost, until he find it? And when he hath found it, he leaveth it on his shoulders, he layeth it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he cometh home, he calleth together his friends and neighbours, saying unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repenteth, more than over the ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Either that woman having ten pieces of silver, if she lose one piece, doth not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it. And when she hath found it, she calleth her friends and her neighbours together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I had lost. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. What we see here <coughs> is divine empathy, rejoicing in the salvation of a single soul reflected through the holy angels. The angels rejoice. Do you ever think of that? I mean, think of that. Think of what occurred. Think of what occurred in heaven when you came to believe the gospel. Think of the rejoicing in heaven when you came to believe the gospel. I don't know if you've ever watched any of those videos on YouTube where you've got individuals who are preaching the gospel of Christ and they're sharing the gospel with an individual and the light turns on. It's almost like you've just witnessed someone go from damnation to eternal joy right before your eyes. They were born again right then. You just saw it. And it's like, did you see that? 
Did you see that change? Did you see the light turn on in their hearts? Did you see how they, they believed the gospel? They're saved. Now they're saved. They're eternally saved. Now we experience that on such a small level. Imagine the angels in heaven who actually know exactly what the cost was to sin and know what the joy is in Christ. I can understand why they rejoice. Could you even begin to then comprehend how God must rejoice? Could you even fathom when an individual believes the gospel of his son that was sacrificed on that cross in Calvary? I, I can't even begin to imagine it. And I, I think that we're in heaven. We will uh, we'll recognise it for what it is. The empathy of brethren rejoice. The second point this morning. The empathy of God, according to Paul, should be matched by the brethren of the Lord, the children of God. Each person who is saved by their faith in Christ should also rejoice with those who do rejoice. They should weep with them that weep. The natural empathy first of rejoicing is found within those who know the Lord. We did that this morning with the news of, um, of, of Lachlan and, and Saskia and, and this joy with regards to this child that is going to come into the world. Yes, now everybody in YouTube land knows that. So my daughter's <laughs> going to have a child. I'm excited. I'm going to be a granddad. My daughter, the other daughter called me Gandalf the other day. Which, I don't know. <laughs> we rejoice with them that rejoice. It should be the most natural thing in the world to do. It is love without hypocrisy. It is true love without hypocrisy. It is a love that seems to be evident within Paul's command in this passage in Romans chapter 12. We're commanded to rejoice with them that do rejoice. We are to share in that state of heart that others are experiencing. We are to be empathetic, empathetic in their joy. I know, and I mentioned this just before, I know that nothing gives me greater joy than to know that my children are joyful. There's nothing that blesses me more knowing that my children are joyful, that they feel blessed by the Lord. This is really interesting. I was talking to my wife about this, that it's the joy, not the event, that makes all the difference. Let me explain. When an individual is going through a difficult, traumatic time within their lives, it's not the traumatic time that you're concerned about. It's how they're handling it. You can still have joy, though you go through great tribulations. The Bible tells us that. Can it all joy when you suffer tribulations? You can have joy when you go through difficult times within your lives. For me, with respect to my kids, I know that they're going to have these ups and downs within their lives. They're going to have the peaks and the troughs. They're going to come. But for me, my concern is not necessarily the depths of the troughs or the, the difficulty that they're enduring, but how are they handling it? Are they joyful? Are they okay? You've done so yourself. You know, you know that someone's going through a really, really terrible time and you'll pick up the phone and, and all you're concerned about is how are you handling it? Are you okay? You know, or are you completely overwhelmed? Are you completely overwhelmed? So my joy comes when my children joy with respect to whatever the event is within their lives. That's, that's not what's most important. It's not the event. 
is that they are experiencing joy during this time. And the Lord feels exactly the same way. But as Christians, as brethren, this is what we need to be experiencing. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. This is an expression of love and empathy that sets aside all of your own matters and has them focused upon the, tr- the peaks and troughs of others. You know as well as I do that most of our lives are pretty uneventful. There's, there's not a lot that happens in the average time of our lives despite what you see on Instagram. You know, we, we, we get up in the morning, we eat, we prep for the day, we go to work, we come home, we eat, and then we prepare to go to sleep. That's pretty much the average within our lives, okay? That's what we see as the norm within our lives. But there's always going to be peaks and valleys that interrupt that timeline. Um, These are short-lived events, but they can be pretty sharp in either direction. It's these peaks and valleys that we see in others which should interrupt the focus of our own lives that allow us to then place our attention upon others. This is what helps us to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. We interrupt that plainness of our own lives to rejoice with them that rejoice and weep with them that weep. And what a blessing it is to rejoice in the prosperity of another person. But the question is that what actually prevents us from doing so as God does? What prevents us... um, Why is it that sometimes we weep or are bitter at the rejoicing of another? Has that ever happened to you? It's happened to me. It's definitely happened to me. I mean, um, if you've never experienced this, you've never experienced... Well, haven't you ever experienced it? You ever experienced a a bit of resentment at the prosperity of somebody else? Um, I've experienced it. I've been resentful of the prosperity of somebody else. Instead of rejoicing with them that rejoice, I'm like, yeah, good on you. Good on you. It didn't come my way, you know. It didn't happen to me. Yeah, I'm oh, glad you're happy, pal, you know. So I'm glad that's never happened to any of you. So it's me that struggles with envy. Because that's what that is. It's envy. It's envy. And envy in every way is discovered to be a sin in the scriptures. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 29. We'll have a look at the second time that envy appears. And this is an interesting time. The first time is with the Philistines who envied the prosperity of Abraham. The second time here is with a lady who envies her sister. Genesis chapter 29. The end of the chapter, verse 31, is where we're going to be taking our text. Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. Genesis 29, 31, let's read. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bare a son. And she called his name Reuben, for she said, Surely the Lord hath looked upon my affliction. Now therefore my husband will love me 
And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Because the Lord hath heard that I was hated, he hath therefore given me this son also. And she called his name Simeon. And she conceived again and bare a son and said, Now this time will my husband be joined unto me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore was his name called Levi. And she conceived again and bare a son. And she said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah and left bearing. Chapter 30, verse 1. And when Rachel saw that she bare Jacob no children, Rachel envied her sister and said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Jacob, how did Jacob respond? What's it good to do with me? I'm doing the best I can. But it's the Lord that's closed your womb. It's the Lord that's closed your womb. Rather than rejoicing with her sister, she envied her sister. And this is her sister. This is her sister. The response of Saskia's sister to the news of her pregnancy was an overwhelming joy. And I can tell you that. It was an unbelievable joy that she had. One that brought her to tears. She was so joyful in this news of her sister. Completely opposite to that of Rachel. Completely opposite. Rachel envied her sister. Beloved, I want to to make sure you don't make a mistake here. Don't mistake envy for jealousy in the Scriptures. Do not mistake envy for jealousy. There is a consistency in the use of these words in the Bible, and these words are not synonymous. Now, that might surprise you. You look up a modern dictionary today, you see the word envy defined as jealousy. That is absolutely not how Scripture presents those two. They are opposite. They are polar opposites. Let me explain. Envy is a sin that stems from covetousness. But God is a jealous God. Exodus 20 verse 5. Exodus 34 verse 14 says his very name is jealous. How can envy be synonymous with jealousy if one is identified with sin while the other is identified with God? Jealousy is not envy. Jealousy has its root out of love. The envy has its root out of covetousness. Understand that. Be sure to recognise that in Scripture. Otherwise, you can find yourself in error. Okay? And I challenge you, you all have little searches on your on your devices, have a look how the word envy is used right through scripture and you'll be able to see it. Um, Rachel envied her sister. The brothers of Joseph envied him and you saw the consequence of that. The sons of Korah envied Moses and Aaron in the camp before the ground swallowed them up. We're reminded in Psalm 106 verse 16. Proverbs 14 verse 30 says, A sound heart is the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of the bones. What a great expression. Envy is the rottenness of the bones. It rots your bones. It rots you from the inside. Proverbs 27 verse 4 says, Wrath is cruel and anger is outrageous, but who is able to stand before envy? There's nothing good said about envy, yet the name of God is jealous. Paul speaks about the church of Corinth who was starting to stray starting to move away from the truth of the gospel. And he says, I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. 
Beloved, I experience exactly the same thing within this church. I experience the same thing when a brother or a sister is moving away from the Lord and going to another gospel which is not the Lord's. I am jealous. I'm jealous of that because of my love for that individual. It stems not from envy. It stems from a burden that the person is moving away from the Lord. And I am jealous for the Lord's sake with respect to that. Jealousy is not envy. The two are completely different. Really important to recognise that. Didn't want to go on too much of a tangent, but I did want to bring that up. So I hope that was clear. Yeah? Yeah. There's a deep-seated covetous hatred is the very emotion behind the expression keeping up with the Joneses. It's a covetousness that has absolutely no basis in reality. While you spend all your time trying to keep up with the Joneses and having the Joneses as your focus, they're just getting on with life. They don't even really think about you very often, if at all. Matter of fact, the 1913 New York comic strip under the same name, that's where it originated, incredibly never features the Joneses themselves. They are never featured in that comic strip, but they were always spoken about and always alluded to and always envied. They themselves were simply too busy getting on with life than to appear in a comic strip dedicated to them. And so too it is with envy. While your bones rot with envy, they are just getting on with life. Think about that for a second. I had it charged on my account one time, many, many years ago, when an individual said, you know, Eddie, I'm just sick of this competition with each other, you know? And I just said, what competition? You know, between you and me. I'm like, oh, man, I've got no idea where you're coming from, mate, but I've got too many of my own problems to worry about, you know, competing with you with your problems. I, I, I don't even think about the individual with regards to competing, yet that individual had me as, as his focus, which was astounding. This is envy. This is a picture of envy. It's covetousness. And it's difficult to rejoice with them that do rejoice when you're filled with envy. Brethren, that's something that you need to deal with. If you've ever experienced that, it's actually covetousness. What you're actually saying is that God hasn't given me everything that I want. I'm not satisfied with the lot that God has provided for me. I'm not content. Therefore, when my brother or my sister rejoices, I find myself envious. You should be content in whatever state you find yourself in. Paul wrote that from a prison cell. So it's worth keeping that in check. Incline your heart to the testimonies of God and not to covetousness. Psalm 119 verse 36 brings that out. Therefore, rejoice with them that do rejoice. Third point this morning is that divine empathy weeps. I've broken the sermon up into rejoicing for the first two, both divine and human and I'm broken that up into also weeping in the second half with divine and, and human. We weep with them that weep. But it's interesting. It's one of the things that I found really interesting. I'm looking for the passages in the scriptures that speaks about God rejoicing, you know. And the interesting thing about that is that they're there. There's plenty of them that are there with God rejoicing with man. But I found a really hard time bringing it out. 
And the reason why I had a hard time bringing it out is because the context of all of the passages that speak of God rejoicing in man, it's not yet. It's all in the millennium. It's in the millennium. It's in, it's in that time yet to come. The context of those passages speak about God rejoicing with man only in that thousand year reign when that comes. He rejoices over man when they obey his commandments and blesses them, but he rejoices abundantly during that time. You can only imagine how glorious that thousand years is going to be. But in the meantime, what I do see a lot is the weeping. I see a lot of God's empathy in sorrow with man through man's trials, through man's difficulties, through man's pains. I see a lot of that. You see that reflected in that poem, Footprints. You see a picture of that. You know, God has empathy with us and he actually does carry us through those times. When it came to divine empathy with respect to weeping, sorrowing, suffering and pain, I found far too many passages that I could actually present to you this morning and it was doing my head in because I was really burdened by what to bring out and there were just so many. One of the things that's really interesting that the Bible speaks of Jesus Christ as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in Isaiah 53. Beloved, that is the divine acquaintance with grief that demonstrates how God sympathises with us in our own trials. <coughs> Speaking of Christ, the writer of the letter to the Hebrews wrote, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Isaiah 63 verse 9 says, In all their affliction he was afflicted. Speaking of the Saviour. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love. And in his pity, he redeemed them. And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Carried them all the days of old. There's no greater physical example of compassion than that demonstrated by Christ. All through the gospel accounts in the New Testament, we see the same sort of thing. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them, Matthew 9:36. Then Jesus called the disciples unto him and said, I have compassion on the multitude, Matthew 15:32. So Jesus had compassion on them and touched their eyes, Matthew 20:34. And Jesus moved with compassion, put forth his hand and touched him, Mark 1:41. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, Luke 7:13. One of the most precious demonstrations of divine empathy is found in the New Testament and is identified in one verse. Let me say that again. One of the most precious demonstrations of divine empathy is found in the New Testament and is found in one verse. It is the clearest expression of divine empathy in what has become known as the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. John eleven thirty five. Jesus groaned in his spirit when he saw the women weeping. He groaned in his spirit when he saw the Jews weeping for Lazarus. He wept for their weeping. He groaned for their groaning. 
He was burdened and troubled by their sadness at this time. He also loved Lazarus. He loved Lazarus. But he knew what he would do. He had the opportunity, remember? He had the opportunity to spare or save Lazarus's life, remember? And he tarried another three days in Jerusalem. He didn't go. He knew that Lazarus was, was sick. And he said, Lazarus will sleep. will sleep in the Lord. He tarried, he waited, and God knew what he would do. One of the things that he would do is glorify God through Lazarus and raise him from the dead. Nevertheless, he wept. God wept respecting the death of Lazarus. God wept over Jerusalem who knew not the time of her visitation in Luke chapter 19 verse 44. God wept once before over Jerusalem. It was one of the greatest examples of sorrow and sadness and empathy found of God in the weeping through the prophet Jeremiah. And it's found in the book of Lamentations. It's worth turning there. The book of Lamentations, it's in the middle of the five major prophets so if you get to the book of psalms turn right go past isaiah go past jeremiah you'll find lamentations if you get to ezekiel or daniel you've gone too far go back it's right in the midst of those five major prophets book of lamentations and we're going to be taking the text from verse one of chapter one of lamentations you know, one of the things that we see is time and again, God as a doting and loving father, all he could do is teach his people to trust him and to obey his voice. Time and again, they rebelled against him. In Isaiah chapter 1, he says, I have nourished and brought up children and they have rebelled against me. And that's you hear in the heart of God crying out. Now he's got no choice but to afflict them and to carry out his warning to them so long ago. And we saw the events unfold in the book of Jeremiah. We saw, we saw how in Jeremiah, he's, you know, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And you saw how Jeremiah was so burdened for the nation of Israel to follow after God, to believe God, to trust in God, to turn back to God. But God had called and said that, no, enough is enough. Now they need to be essentially banished. They're going to be taken into captivity by King Nebuchadnezzar from Babylon and they're going to be taken into a country with a language of a people that they know not. And, and Jeremiah followed that entire endeavour and he watched them. He watched them sin in every single way. He warned them, he told them. It's amazing, isn't it, when you think about it? Here's Jonah, he goes to the city of Nineveh, preaches the gospel, and 120,000 people come to the Lord. And here's Jeremiah, and this is three days. And here's Jeremiah preaching on the streets of Jerusalem 40 years, and we don't know of a single convert. Now, the city's empty. And Jeremiah sits, he's looking at the city, and you see the heart of God. You see the heart of God just pour out through Jeremiah's writing. How doth the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? She that was great among the nations and princes among the provinces. How has she become tributary? She weepeth sore in the night and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers she hath none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her they are become her enemies judah is gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude she dwelleth among the heathen she findeth no rest all her persecutors overtook her between the straits 
The ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate, her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. Her adversaries are the chief, her enemies prosper. For the Lord hath afflicted her for the multitude of her transgressions. Her children are gone into captivity before the enemy. Never think that the Lord is ignorant of your affliction and of your sorrow. Never think that God does not know your pain and your suffering. Never think that the Saviour cannot empathise with you in all of your sadness and grief. If only you could see all that he has done to bring you near to him, if only you can see how much he is burdened for you, if, if only you could see how much he loves you and the extent that he has gone to redeem you, if only you can see that, you would run to him. You would run. You would run into those arms. You would run to him knowing that his love is an eternal love. You would run to him knowing that he suffered and died that you might live. You would run to him knowing that you have sinned against your own soul and you need a saviour. You would run. You would run if you could see you through the eyes of God. You would run to him knowing that he will keep you, that he would hold you safe and that no man is able to pluck you out of his hand. My sheep hear my voice, he says. <laughs> and I know them and, I, and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My father which gave them me is greater than all. And no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. We see Christ with you in his hand. We see God the father with you in his hand. And then he finishes that verse and he says, I and my father are one. Such a precious, enduring passage in the Bible. Divine empathy weeps, but most emphatically weeps for the saving of your own soul. For the saving of your own soul. The empathy of brethren weep. Last point this morning. Rejoice with them that do rejoice and weep with them that weep. Paul writes this to the brethren of the Lord. And he writes to the church at Rome. Um, to Christians like, like you and I. It's a command, you'll notice. It's a command. It's telling us how we need to live with one another. It's an interesting thing that's occurred. Within this, just January, within this last month, we've experienced certain things as a church. We've rejoiced in the purchase of a, of a new home by like Chrissy and David and Pavel. We rejoice in their joy that they are going to be moving into a, a wonderful home for themselves that they've bought for themselves. And yet at the same time, we've also wept. We've wept bitterly over the death of Jason, the son of Dorothy and Victor, the brother of Mel, the partner of, of Julie, and, and one who also truly loved Gracie and Alex. We've wept over that. You know, we, we saw that. We saw them weeping and we wept. It's difficult not to. It's difficult not to. When there's an empathy for individuals, we rejoice with them and rejoice. And we also weep with them that, that weep. And we, we rejoiced even today over the news of a child that is going to come into the world. We rejoiced with, with 
Sass and, and Lockie with respect to that. Yet we also have sorrowed over the loss of property of a brother in Christ, Shane, and the near tragedy of his young apprentice. And this is only in the last few days. So in one month, we've already experienced this full range of emotion. And I'm not even talking about all the other things that probably went on during the month that I could have brought to the surface here. So as a church, we've experienced that. We've experienced that. We will endure many such experiences as this. And the range of emotions from rejoicing to weeping is good and is proper. And it should be the way for people who love one another. It should be the way for people who love one another. This is a love that is without hypocrisy. This is a love that is without covetousness, without envy, without self-idolatry. This is unique, beloved. This is unique. I wish I could tell you that in the church today, how we experience love and how we experience the emotions and the, and the burden that we have one for another, I wish I could tell you that this is reflected in every other church. But it's not. It's sadly not. Nor is it expected to be something that will grow in other churches. Matter of fact, it's most likely going to diminish among churches around the world. And we can run the risk of it diminishing here. I'm under no illusion as to think that this small church would not potentially also fall prey to that individually amongst, amongst individuals, if not as a whole. Paul tells us what it's going to be like in the church of the last days. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. I'm leading to something here that I want you to be able to be aware of and see and be warned about. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Paul here is, is writing not to a church, he's writing to a pastor. This is one, what's known as the past, one of the pastoral epistles that's found in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and the book of Titus. These are the pastoral epistles. Paul writing to pastors and he writes this to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 3. He says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, Despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. I've got no doubt that many of you, when you actually read that text for the first time, you're thinking, the world's going to look pretty tough during those times. That's not a description of the world, beloved. That was always in the world. That's the typical nature of the world. All of that we see reflected in Romans chapter 1. If you've read Romans chapter 1, you'll see that's the natural state of the flesh, of the world. That's speaking about the church. That's the state of the church in the last days. That's not the state of the world. 
We are to continue to trust in the Lord, to read his word, to flee from covetousness, to move away from the desire and the distraction of riches, to move away from the lusts and the sins that so easily besets us, to cling to the book of life and to trust in Christ. We are to trust in the precious, selfless love and affection that you see within this small assembly. And we are to continue this into the future. We are to trust and rejoice in the Lord. We need to first guard our own hearts, beloved. If you're going to rejoice with them that do rejoice, and you are, and you are truly going to comfort and by weeping with those who weep, you need to first guard your own heart. So I want to just spend a moment speaking about the antonym this morning. The opposite of empathy and compassion is pitilessness. There seems to have been compassion shown by the friends of Job uh, in the first days of his mourning. We're going to take a look at Job, so if you want to turn there, please, please do so. Job is before the book of Psalms. In the Bible, we don't see an account of any other individual that has such an acute turnaround of circumstances as Job. It's probably the single most astounding series of events in the Bible afflicted by any one individual or afflicted, uh, afflicted upon any one individual. He went from unequaled wealth to, and prosperity in his day to losing it all, um, including his children. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. He lost his children. He lost the honour of his wife and he also lost the respect of all the the townsfolk, the people in the town. He was a prince among them and now they scorned him. And added to that, he lost his, his health. And just to add, you know, to the greater burden, he had three friends. Yet, yet, for seven days and for seven nights, his three friends showed Job company and compassion. There wasn't a single word spoken between them for seven days and seven nights as they sat with Job. And then Job broke his heart to them in Job chapter 3. Job chapter 3. And in verse 3, Job broke his silence. And he said, Let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which it was said there is a man-child conceived. Let that day be darkness, let not God regard it from above. Neither let the light shine upon it, let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it, let the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, let darkness seize upon it. Let it not be joined unto the days of the year, let it not come into the number of the months. Lo, let that night be solitary, let no joyful voice come therein. Let them curse it that curse the day, who are, need, who are ready to raise up their morning. Let the stars of the twilight thereof be dark. Let it look for light, but have none. Neither let it see the dawning of the day, because it shut not up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hid sorrow from mine eyes. Why died I not from the womb? Why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? The sorrow of 
Job was matched only by the indifference of his friends. The sorrow of Job was matched only by the indifference of his friends. These did not weep with those who wept. You'll see, and as you read the rest of of Job, you'll find that there is complete indifference. That chapter after chapter, they answered him that he had brought this misery upon himself and none pitied him. And Job cries out in chapter 6, he says, To him that is afflicted, pity should be showed from his friends, but he forsaketh the fear of the Almighty. Turn forward to chapter 19. Turn forward to chapter 19. Job here is now dealing with the changes that have afflicted his life in the hope that his friends may look upon him with compassion and pity. Job chapter 19 verse 17. He speaks of this. He speaks of the events of his life. And he says in verse 17, My breath is strange to my wife, though I entreated for the children's sake of mine own body. Yea, young children despised me. I arose and they spoke against me. All my inward friends abhorred me. And they whom I loved are turned against me. My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh. And I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Have pity upon me. Have pity upon me, O ye my friends. For the hand of God hath touched me. Why do ye persecute me as God? And are not satisfied with my flesh. Oh, that my words were now written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. That they were graven with an iron pen. And led in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer liveth. And that he shall stand in that latter day upon the earth. And that, though after my skin worm destroy this body, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself. And mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. Beloved, we are called to rejoice with them that rejoice, and to weep with them that weep. Paul wrote, We that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. In Romans 15.1, he said, Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In Galatians 6.2, there are going to be opportunities for joy and for sorrow in life. And it's going to be our love and compassion towards others that are going to make all the difference in the world to them. Maybe look around and see who you should bless. Maybe, and everybody should. There's not a single individual in this church that should not be looking at another individual and what they're going through and what they're suffering. Every single one of us here at one point in our life is going to be suffering more than somebody else. Every single one of us is. We should be looking to bless them. We should be looking to rejoice with them that rejoice. We should be looking to weep with them that weep. This is something that we are to share with them. Job's story ends with his words indeed written, printed in a book forever. And the ultimate person he seeks after, even if all his friends fail him, is the Redeemer he knows liveth. So rejoice and remember whose child you are. So when you think that another should comfort you and that doesn't come, know that your Redeemer liveth. 
Know that He is the one who will stand at that latter day upon the earth. And in your flesh you shall see God. Know that it's Christ who suffered and died for you that you might have life. Know that He and He first rejoices with you when you rejoice, but also weeps when you weep. Even if all people abandon you, know that you have the Lord always there, always there, always present before you. He's there with you every night. He's there with you when you arise every morning. There is not a time that he is going to be away from you. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is Christ. So just when you think that everybody else has left, he's always there. Jesus is always there. And he's always just one cry away. If you know Christ, you have the greatest comfort in the Lord. You know, you have the greatest comfort in the Lord. Nevertheless, the command is still a burden upon us. We need to be with those who weep. We need to rejoice with those who rejoice. If you don't know Jesus, if you're even unsure whether or not you're truly saved, you don't know whether you know Christ, then today is an opportunity to change your life. There was an event. It's an interesting event. And I want to close on this verse. Close on this verse. Turn to the book of Acts chapter 16. And the reason I want to go there is because there is a really interesting portion. And I can't avoid the gospel. I can't shy away from it. It's a wonderful blessing. It's interesting because of what has occurred immediately after this individual was saved. I want you to think about it. I want you to think about his own service. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. Paul and Silas had been taken into prison. They'd been taken into prison because of preaching the gospel of Christ. And in verse 25, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed, and they sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Verse 26 of Acts chapter 16. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking out of sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. Remember, it was a charge of the, prisoner, of the prison guard to keep the prisoners. If the prisoners escaped, his life was forfeit. So he was ready to take his own life because he believed the prisoners had been fled. But look at verse 28. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. And then he called for a light, and he sprang in, and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, and brought them out, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved, and thy house. Do you see the simplicity of it? Do you see the simplicity of the salvation? Do you recognise something that first it was sought of by the prison guard? The first thing he desired was, what must I do to be saved? Do you notice that Paul didn't give him 12 steps? Do you notice that? You recognise that. There was no 12 steps to salvation in Paul's message. 
Do you recognise that there's not, you don't have to count all these different rosary beads, you don't have to do 25 Hail Marys, you don't have to you know, show up to church every single Sunday, make sure you're wearing your suit and tie, look the goods. He didn't say any of that. What did he say? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. But not only him, and thine house. Let's keep reading. Verse 32, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night. This is the prison guard. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptised. He and all his straightway. In other words, immediately. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. The immediate state of the heart of those who are born again is to serve. The focus leaves you and the focus is placed on others. The focus is placed on others. That's why we can rejoice with them that rejoice and we can weep with them that weep. We can't do it otherwise. We can't do it otherwise. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the word of God. We ask you, dear Lord, that you would do your work within us that we might be changed, that we might have a burden and a heart for those who are, dear Lord, at this time rejoicing and even at this time weeping. Help us have a burden and a love for our brethren, that we would love each other more than we love ourselves, that we would regard one another more than we regard ourselves, that our hearts, dear Lord, might be lifted up in the joy of knowledge that you, dear Lord, are always beside us, that you, dear Father, are always watching over us. I pray, dear Lord, watch over these brethren and all who hear this message this morning. To the glory of God, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.